GCCB website, is there like any practice exams that you can go out no. and go download? No, but you guys already have the study guide. Contained within that study guide is the actual question pool. All of the questions that can possibly show up on that, with the exception of the actual styles for comparison, are in that study guide that you have. And they will be worded exactly as you see them. Those are not just sample questions. Those are the real thing. It's a tough exam, but it's one where the entire question pool is known in advance. You just don't know which 10 you're going to get. But don't forget, we talked about the format. There's going to be one recipe question. There will be two style comparison questions. There will be one classic example, which is a score sheet to fill out. There will be a troubleshooting question of three flaws, and they are laid out exactly as they're written in the, um, in the study guide. And there will be a geography question. And then there will be a control question, which is kind of like a troubleshooting question. But I think there's only a pool of three questions that can show up in there. There's a limited number of recipes that can show up. There's only, I think, 12. And most of them involve a decoction mash. So when we get into procedure, we're going to discuss decoction mashes. One of them, classic American Pilsner, could involve a cereal mash, which is sort of a modified version of decoction. And the rest of them, English, there's an English pale ale and an American pale ale in that that don't show up very often for a simple infusion. <coughs> Remember that what you're answering is basically the most conservative, traditional approach to these beer styles, the historic uh, approach, not the latest, greatest thing you read in this issue of Zymergy. Okay? That will not really cost you points per se, but they're looking for tradition in the answers to these questions. Okay? That's our review for the night on this. I will uh, give you guys an overview as to how this turned out, and I think you guys know what to do with that information. You know where to stand, not you. But I'm going to give you guys an overview as a class as to how it went. Okay? Without further ado, we're going to talk about water tonight. Um, without water, there can be no beer. And now I expect a perfect score. He would actually not even look at You only have three hours to do the exam, so time management is really important. Very, very, very important. No matter what you answer on a question, the graders are always going to have some little nitpick of something they want more. That does not mean that you didn't score a 9 or a 10 on that answer. It just means, oh, yeah, here's one little tidbit that perhaps you know, the graders can throw in. Uh, I just scored a set of exams. I had one exam that was clearly in the master category. It's rare to come across them when they're obviously in the master category. They're usually a matter of debate. Um, and much of it was because the person named detail within a number of different aspects and really proved that they had more knowledge than ended up on the page. And that's one of the things that graders will look into, is try to figure out if you're basically writing everything you know, or simply writing down what you've memorized, or if you actually know what you're talking about and there's more knowledge than is on there. Okay. 
a lot of the topics people have written books on. Hops, malt, water, yeast. People have made doctoral theses on these things. So you're not expected to cover every minutia. Just cover the major points and read the questions carefully and cover the points that are required in the question without going off on a travel log. Another examinee asking about uh, Lambic. He talked all about the history of Lambic, where he could find good, good Lambics in Belgium, and absolutely failed to describe the beer itself. So that's not going to score very well, but he spent a half a page on it. So time management is very important to read the questions. We will be getting into the nitty-gritty of some exam strategies as we go on, so expect that pretty much to start every class. Okay. Good enough. I leave it to Dr. Scott to talk about water. Water. Okay, some of you guys have heard my talks on water. This one's going to be an abbreviated one. Uh, Kevin and I have talked about what this class is about, and that's about passing the test. So. Because of the high points on what it's going to be as far as water, what you're going to need to know for the test. I've also thrown other things in there to kind of help you think through water instead of me just giving you a bunch of stuff to memorize and you don't know what, what the hell, what's coming up. Okay? So we, we mentioned something, you don't know what that is. I mentioned, I'm going to talk about ions and things. I'm going to tell you what they are. If you don't know what they are or anything else, give me a hand and I'll, I'll explain that. Don't know and just keep on going and not good. know what else is going on down the road. So, alright, so we're talking about water. Water's 90% of the beer. Other constituents are in there that uh, are dissolved into the water. And that, that's the cool thing about water is it dissolves things. If it didn't, you wouldn't get them into the beer. Uh, you wouldn't have beer in the first place. So most water is okay to, to brew with, as they say. Uh, tastes good, it's okay to brew with, but that's not really what we're talking about here. Uh, first thing is, you know, if tap water is okay, great, that's the first place to start. But you got to get rid of chlorine, chloramines, and sanitizers that the water department puts in there. We've talked about ways to get rid of that, so I'm probably going to pass off on that one. And, uh, Why don't you cover them anyway? Okay. Um, well, most common thing in there is chloramines now. It used to be chlorine. So they put chlorine gas in there and it would just keep standing water in the pipes more sanitary. It doesn't, doesn't kill everything in there, but it keeps it more sanitary. But it, it would off gas too easy. So now that was easy to get rid of. You could just put it in an open pot overnight and it went off gas and you'd be done with it. Now they're getting into chloramines, which is a compound that's a little more stable in water. It's hard to get rid of. That's the stuff that you got to put the the pills in your aquarium before you kill your fish. Well, another way to get rid of the chloramines is some people say you can filter it. It's not the greatest way to do it, but you can filter it. Uh, the better way to do it is use Camden tablets. One tablet, 20 gallons. 20 tablets, 20 gallons, or one quarter and five. And, uh, you want to crush it pretty fine because it doesn't doesn't dissolve very well, and that'll get rid of the chloramines in there. Otherwise, you're going to end up with chlorophenols and nasty tasting things on down the line in the beer. So that goes on to, you know, if it tastes like chlorine, you're going to take, have chlorine beer. So you got to get rid of that it's a couple of different ways. Uh, we're going to be talking about more in depth about what's water and why we need 
change it necessarily. It depends on what we're going to end up doing. Uh, depending on the makeup, uh, some water can't uh, brew certain styles of beer very well. Uh, if you've got really alkaline water, it's really highly buffered, you're not going to get a good pale ale or a good Pilsner out of it. It's just going to be kind of harsh and nasty. Uh, if you've got uh, real, real soft water and on the other hand you're trying to brew a stout, it's not going to be a great stout. It's going to show a pH one way or the other. We'll talk about that one too. Uh, that brings us to you know, certain famous brewing regions and certain styles. Why they ended up with why why does Dublin have stouts, and not pilsners, and why does Pilsen have pilsners, and why does uh, uh, Munich have dark beers, box, doppel box, Oktoberfest, uh, uh, things like that. And it all comes down to the brewing water that they had to brew with. If uh, but they didn't know about chemistry back then. All they knew was just that. You know, certain mashes wouldn't work. They're trying different recipes and things. Uh, over in uh, Munich, they got wind of, or in Pilsen, they're making Pilsners. They tried to do it, it didn't work. They didn't know about water chemistry so much back then, so they started trying other things. Uh, so the water had a big impact on what kind of brew or what kind of beer they could brew there successfully and have it taste good and you know, be a success. So. That's where you get the famous water from famous places, and that's where the came from. So later on, we found out that you know, that was because of the water chemistry. Now most of these places know enough they can change the water chemistry to get kind of whatever they want out of it. So it's more of a historic thing than that. But if you want to go into mimicking these things, you can and get that certain flavor profile out of it. Or you might have to do it just to doctor your water so you can have a successful brew and depend on what you're going to do. A lot of people say, well, I, I brew fine beers with my water, and I, I, you know, my water's fine, I brew fine water. But, you know, if you're not, at the end of the scale, you're not going to brew a great light beer if you can brew a great, great stout with all the same water. We're going to talk about that and why it's more good. Brew water chemistry, mostly... A, Mainly the thing is it's for all grain brewers. Uh, it's mainly having to do with pH and the mash and the chemical constituents of that, along with the, the malt, what it has to do and where it ends up with the pH. And the secondary is the flavor impact. Uh, the other ions in there, the other chemicals in there will impact the flavor uh, to a lesser degree. And to me, that usually comes into if you're trying to mimic a style from a certain region rather than just actually trying to brew the beer. Uh, you can add the chemicals to mimic you know, Burton-on-Trent, uh, London water, Pilsen's a little different way of doing you know, adding to it, mostly taking it away, we'll, we'll talk about that too. Uh, you can adjust for proper mash pH. Uh, you don't really want to adjust your water as much deal with the mash. So if you're taking your mash pH and have your water pH ahead of time, it's whatever it is, it's not that important at that point. If it's really alkaline, if it's really a high pH, you might have to deal with it. But if it's you know within a decent range, you're not going once it gets in the mash, it's gonna all change. Depending on what grain you have in there. So we're talking about mash pH, deal with the mash pH rather than anything else. Um, RO water, uh, same as distilled water, there's no chemicals in it, no ions, just plain straight water. Uh, unless you know what you're doing, it's not a good idea to use it. 
because you need to know what to add back to it. It's not a good idea to use RO water. You're going to end up, uh, you don't have enough nutrients for the yeast. The yeast is going to need some minute zinc and magnesium and a few other things. And uh, also, you're not going to have enough calcium in there or what other things you need for the mash to help with the, with the mash. <coughs> so, let's go into some definitions. Uh, first, click uh, water.
into that too. But these two are the main things. You always see those on people's uh, recipes. Add a, add a teaspoon of gypsum. Not necessarily a good idea. You don't know what your water is. You might be already high in sulfates, and then you add gypsum to it. You kind of really mess things up. You get lots of different flavor compounds or accentuated flavors and things like that. So if somebody says just randomly add calcium sulfate or add, yeah, add gypsum, be wary of that. You don't necessarily need to do that unless you know the makeup of your water, but on the same token, you don't know the makeup of their water. And maybe they're trying to make a Burton on Trent type of beer or something, but you got to know the levels of that one. So just remember those two. Uh, Gypsum and chalk or calcium. That's carbonate. Yeah. Chalk. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So these are these are two of the main ones. This is what salts are. You have to add them if they add salts, so you can get the ions in there. But when you add one, they want a bit more calcium in there. I got to figure out which one I'm gonna do. There's other ways of doing it. Calcium chloride, that's another one. There's lots of other things. We'll go into which salts are pretty much available to brewers and how to deal. But these are the main two on that one. Uh, I guess I can go over that. So the main ones for uh, brewers are gypsum, chalk, calcium sulfide, calcium chloride, that's another one. Baking soda, sodium. Uh, Bicarbonate, Epsom salts is another one, it's magnesium sulfate. Instead of calcium, it's a magnesium sulfate. And then you have table salt, calcium chloride, or sorry, chloride. Those are the main main ones that uh, you can use to add back into the water. All right. Let's talk about pH. pH is a scale from 1 to 14. It's a measure of the amount of hydrogen or hydron ions in there. It's the pH is the negative logarithm. So power of hydrogen. Yeah, power of hydrogen. So if you you've got to, if it's a, it's a logarithm, so the difference between 5.8 and 5.9 is kind of like the Richter scale. That's 10 times more of this of the hydrogen. Now, now it's ten times. Tenfold. Tenfold. Okay, so just remember that. So if you're just throwing only a you know, tenth off, it's good. it can make a big difference if you're out of the range. Seven is neutral. Uh, some things is uh, most city waters and things are kind of up in this range or above seven. Uh, they do that so that you don't that it doesn't eat the pipes. It will. So they, they put things in it to keep it just a little bit on the alkaline side. <coughs> so the smaller numbers are more acid or more acidic, and they're more basic for alkaline on this side. We're talking about mash. So we're right about the 5.4-ish. It's a range, 5.4, 5.6 in there. 5.3, but but that's about a good spot for it. Uh, beer, when you're done, is about 4.3-ish, 
the range, 4.1, 4.4. A lot of things happen in the beer uh, during fermentation uh, and during the mash that bring it down and during the boil. All helps bring it down. That's a good thing because bacteria don't like it down there. So that helps uh, not things not leaving in your beer. Now the problem is when you when you mash in, it's not going to necessarily make it all the way down to this range for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you don't want to be up above you know, up above six. That's when you start getting in the danger range. You just start uh, leaching tannins and phenols out of the grains, and you're going to get that off flavor in there. So when you're mashing, you want to stay down in here. Also, the enzymes like to work better in this range. Everything, that's why everything we're going to be talking about is to get the mash into this, into this range. And it all has to do with the water you have and the grain you have. They kind of work in conjunction or against each other. Uh, let's talk about hardness. You know, reading things about what hardness is. Hardness is a, a measure of the calcium and the magnesium. In the, in the water. It has to do with scale, things like this. Calcium is the most important one when we're talking about brew water. Uh, it has a lot of things to do. Magnesium does it too, but not nearly as well. So, mostly want to talk about this one. Uh, you've got temporary hardness. We all talk about what temporary hardness is and permanent hardness. When the calcium comes from Calcium sulfate, calcium chloride, it's been in there, it's going to be temporary, it's going to be permanent hardness because you can't get rid of it. If it comes from calcium carbonate, it's going to be, it's going to be temporary hardness. So we've got permanent hardness, temporary hardness. These are just some of the terms that you don't want to get confused on. Why is it temporary hardness? Because if you have a lot of calcium and a lot of carbonate in there, and you add heat into it, you're gonna you're gonna make this come together as calcium carbonate. It'll precipitate out and cause a I think there's a white white crud on the inside of the boiling pot. And you're gonna get CO2 and water. It's gonna come across like that. So that's a good way if you got really hard water and you want to reduce a lot of that and get a lot of the, especially the alkalinity out of there. You boil it, let it cool overnight, rack it off, and you got that. Any of the calcium that's left over, either from this or wherever, that's that's whatever's left over because it this is what's taking it out. That's the that's the permanent hardness. Whatever's left, it's got to stay in there. All right. So once the once that's out of there, now this won't go all the way to completion anyway. Even though once you heat it, you're not going to get rid of, even if you have no other source of calcium, it's still not going to go all the way. Those are just a, a couple of the terms that you might want to There's alkalinity. Alkalinity is another term that's pretty important with what we're doing. Alkalinity has to do with the resistance of, of changing the mash pH by adding uh, hydrogen ions to it. So one of the, one of the most important one is this one. It's uh, bicarbonate. Carbonate also uh, exists as bicarbonate. Mostly in this pH range, it's going to be mostly that one. That's a strong buffer 
A buffer is what holds the pH where it likes in that steady position. Uh, if you've got a strong buffer in, in your solution and you've got a lot of CO3 in there, or carbonate in there, if I keep adding acid in there, there's a strong buffer and it's going to not want to change the pH very much. So when you've got a lot of high carbonate water, your pH is way up here and you're trying everything you can, this is going to hold it. This is an alkaline buffer. It kind of likes to stay up in, up in this range, past the seven mark. So you can help, it, it's like a tug of war in both directions. So you're tugging this way, you're tugging that way. Uh, so this is, the, this is the main one we worry about when we're worrying about brew water, is the carbon level. We can get rid of some of it this way, we can adjust for it a couple of different ways. So when we're adjusting the mash, if you do a, a standard mash, which is pale malt, Pilsner malt, and uh, uh, distilled water with nothing in it, it doesn't like to land in this range. It likes to land a little bit higher than that. So we got to think of you know, it's what we got to do to get it back down. Or if you've got high buffers here, they keep pulling it into the alkaline range. You want to get it down. Into, this, into your mash, mash range here, you got to do some things. <coughs> if you don't, you're going to get it above here. You're going to get some tannins coming out, things like that. Also, your enzymes aren't going to work very well. You're going to end up with not a good yield. Uh, you could end up with you know, kind of, a, especially if it's alkaline water, you're trying to do a pale beer, Pilsner, something like that. You're going to get this uh, dry, acrid kind of taste to it. It's not going to be very, very well done beer on that one. So that's to do with that. So a couple of ways to get it down. Uh, you want to get in the optimal, you know, five four, five six range. Um, you, there's a you, you've heard of an acid rest. They always talk about acid rest, and not many people do it anymore. It was used back when they first started mashing. Uh, mostly they did it to. They didn't really know why it worked, but. It, it helped get a better yield if they, they did a uh, mash temperature at that. It's in the low range, uh, at, at 96, around yeah, there. 92 to 96. Yeah, 92 96. It, what it does is it's, it uses the enzymes <coughs> work at different temperatures, best at different That's why you go in your mash temperatures on the way. So the rest at 92 to 96, that's going to help. There's an enzyme called phytase. And what that does is it works on a compound in the mash, or in the malt, called phytin, and it reacts with it and makes phytic acid. That's where the calcium comes in. The calcium joins with the phytic acid, and it makes a, a phosphate salt that actually will precipitate out, and it, it gives off hydrogen ions. Hydrogen ions going into the solution, lowers the pH. <coughs> That's, that's one way, that's the natural way they did it for a long time until they found out what, what was actually happening. It's also not a very strong way of doing it. If you've got real carbonate water, uh, you're going to have some issues because it won't get enough of that doing it in there. So the other way to do it, mostly is they add acid. The different kinds of acid you can add, lactic, phosphoric, uh, sulfuric. Remember, you're adding acid, but you're also adding the other end of the acid, too. 
Uh, sulfuric acid, H2SO4. Well, we see the SO4 right here. We see the SO4 right here. So I'm, I want to add the acid to get that. But I'm also upping this too. You can't add one thing without adding the other. Uh, lactic acid is going to give it more of a lactic sourness to it. Some beers is good to it. Soon you're going to add too much. Phosphoric acids, kind of a different thing. I kind of associate more with soda pop, phosphoric acid. <coughs> Certain beers is better for that one. Uh, sulfuric acid, kind of dangerous, but uh, if you use it right, uh, it's going to add sulfates. Sulfates actually add things to help boost the perception of uh, your hops, your bitterness in your hops. As long as you don't do too much, as long as it's not associated with other things that we'll get into. So that's a flavor compound more than anything else. So if you're adding acid, you've got to be careful with that. The more traditional way that they found how to, how to make things work, how to get this down into the range, they want to have uh, the, the brewers found that if they make dark beers with roasted malts. Roasted malts are highly acidic. So what I was talking about the, depends on the makeup of the mash. If it's all pale, pale malt, you're not going to get any help acid base-wise. If you have a lot of roasted grains in there, it's going to help pull this down into this range. It's going to overpower all your buffering. So if you're in London, Dublin, places like that that have high carbonate water that they can't make pale beers, they found, well, I put a lot of roasted grain in there. Hey, now I, I, I get down, they, they don't know why, because they don't know anything about the chemistry part, but they knew that they got much more extract, much more sugar out of it. It, did, it stayed down in the range. It didn't get as you know, acrid, nasty tasting beer that was you know, sharp tasting tannins, things like that. So that was the more traditional way, and that's why you see in regions dark beers, light beers, because they had to overcome the water, and they usually do it with, with, with the malt bill in there. Okay. Question. Sure. They sell something called like pH 5.2 here. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Well, what's it doing? Is it dropping it down from that above 7 on the regular tap water, in helping the mash get down into that range, or...? We've talked about this before, and it's kind of a proprietary secret, but it's basically it's a set of buffers. This is a buffer here, but it likes to stay here. They come with a set of buffers that likes to stay in that range. Buffers are like the big dudes on the end of your rope when you're, when you're pulling. And if you, you you can use one up, let's say, not like this is somebody told me once, is you got the big guys on the end pulling. You're gonna use, you can use them up, pick them up, but you can overpower by how much uh, say that you're trying to pull the acid, pull it, pull the pH down by adding acid. You've added an acid. Acid are your pretty girls. At the other <laughs> end, they've got big strong guys pulling at the other end. Throw a pretty girl in. It takes one of the strong guys away. But then it's still pulling. So keep throwing pretty girls out until they got no more strong guys, and it'll all go that way. Okay. So you can use these up. They're not. They're not infinite. So that's why if you use up all your pretty girls, you get nothing but party room. Yeah, there's a lot of this. Put them with the prizes. So, so that, that's one of the reasons why if you've ever watched your pH as you're adding acid, drops, nothing. Drops, not doing anything. A couple drops, it's not doing anything. 
couple drops, it's not any stir for a while. It's barely just barely coming down. And all of a sudden you put two more drops in and wham, it just goes down to here. Because you used up all the buffers. You just overpower all the buffers by putting the acid in there. But throwing a little pretty girl down, and it just, just drops out. So that's why you gotta be careful about how much acid you put in there. Because you have little at a time, because you it just drops down and then you could overshoot and go to the other end. So be careful about adding acid just in that direction. What about acidulated malt? Does that really affect the mash pH that much? Yes, it does, but if you... Isn't that a right way of doing it? Yeah, that is. Because they can't really just add acid. They've got other ways to do it, but yeah, they, they, have, to do, they have to add that. If you do the calculations on paper about how much acidulated malt put in there, you could overshoot it. Because it always, in paper, it always needs more. Because there's a lot more stuff going on with that than just meets the eye. And it's primarily lactic acid that, yeah. it's, that it's made from anyway. So lactose, or I'm sorry, lactic fermentation mm -hmm. that goes on, and they dry it, and you get acid. Yeah. So it's it does work. It's another way of doing it. I only used it a couple of times just because actually I wanted that flavor in the beer. I, I, I used it for flavor, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's another way of doing it. Hey, Doc. Uh, Doc. Hmm. Uh, what do you What do you guys think? Um, I guess this is a question for everybody. What do you think of just using salts for pH adjustment down? I know you mentioned the phosphoric and lactic, but can salts just be used if you you know if you know? Okay, well I don't want to make anything too harshly bitter or dry, so I'll use calcium chloride instead. Is that yeah, we're getting into that. Oh, okay. We're getting into adding salts. Okay. Okay. Um, let's go over ions and what they do. Have I got that? Can I erase that? Okay. <laughs> All right. You've got your positive ions and your negative ions. Uh, by far the most important ones are the positive ones are calcium and again the HCO3 or the CO3 family is the most important the negative ones. Calcium does a lot of things. It protects the amylase enzyme, it helps lower the pH that we talked about already, how it, it combines with the phytase and it helps it it'll lower the pH with that one. Uh, it helps coagulate proteins in the hot and cold break. It's also got to have, uh, it helps uh, keep the oxalate in the solution. So if it comes out of solution, it helps it'll, it'll start gushing in things. The beer will start gushing. So it helps with a lot of different things, even other things that I haven't even mentioned here. Okay. Number-wise, I like to see minimum of 50 to 100 parts per million. On that one, uh, you look at your water and see what it is. You can you can go a little higher and a lot higher on that one, so it's not so much of an issue with that. The rain added. So this is the one mainly what you'd be adding this one for is to lower the pH, which we were talking about. And we'll talk about how to do it and why. So mainly that's the calcium in that one. Negative is this. This is the buffers. This is your alkaline. Your alkalinity. This one helps keep the pH 
in the, in the higher direction with that one. So this becomes important if you're using a lot of roasted grain. Because you can, if you use a lot of roasted grains and you don't have enough buffering capacity, you're going to shoot the pH way past where you need it. It's going to be too too acidic, and enzymes aren't going to work right. Your beer's not going to come out right. You're going to get some off flavors that way too. So these two mostly come into play. This is uh, put pH, and we get these from, like I said, gypsum and the, the chalk, the calcium carbonate. We'll talk about those too. Uh, magnesium, uh, that one, that one works the same way as calcium, but to a lot lesser degree. It's got to be in there for uh, yeast nutrients and things like that. But uh, that adds the hardness, but it, it does that. It just does a lot less than the calcium. Doesn't do much for flavor or anything like that. Uh, sodium. Sodium is another flavor compound. It helps round out the beer flavor. Uh, if you want to accentuate more maltiness or the sweetness of the beer, that's pretty good. Use too high, uh, uh, too high of a concentration, and you're going to get a diuretic or. Uh, you know, yeah. All right. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, yeah, pure constipation. Um, and if too high, it'll, be, it'll taste, taste too salty. So you can do that with too much salt. Okay, sulfate, that's the other half of the other enzyme, or other ion. So this is good if you want to accentuate your hot bitterness. Because a real clean, accentuated hot bitterness. I, I, did an experiment with a pale ale. I really built the water up, made sure I had a high amount of, of this, but not too much. And I tried, tried to keep my pale ale at about 20 IBUs, maybe less. <coughs> Tasted like a 40 IBU beer. Really well balanced, really came out of it. Kind of did what I wanted to do. <coughs> but problem is, these two don't mix got too much sodium and too much sulfate, you're going to get a real harsh, nasty bitterness. You won't like that one. So if you're trying to get a lot of bitterness out of that, and you say, oh, I'm going to throw in some table salt and sodium chloride or some baking soda, we're going to get that one. So stay away from both these at the same time. <coughs> chloride, chloride works the same as, uh, as the sodium. You're going to get, rounds it out, gets more sweetness, get that kind of thing. Go, go lightly on those too, because too much you're going to end up with a salty flavor in there. So, you know, got to get back to you can't add ions, you can't add these, even though you know what characteristics they do, but you can't just add them. You got to add them as a salt. So, let's go.
gypsum. And now it's going to put calcium and sulfate in there. Chalk goes the other direction. Calcium carbonate. Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate. Salt is sodium chloride, calcium chloride, and baking soda is sodium bicarbonate. Remember, you got to add these. So always think in terms of cutting these things in half. I got to add one, I got to the other. Let's see, and then, okay, let's look at this mash pH. We all know the carbon, it does what? Raises the pH. It's alkaline. Alkaline buffer, it helps raise the pH. Sulfate. Sulfate goes the other direction because the sulfate doesn't really do anything, but it has the calcium. Calcium helps it go the other direction. If you've got too much calcium in there, you can add some magnesium sulfate, but you've got to watch out. Too much magnesium is not good. Um, sodium chloride, that's your table salt. That's going to round out the flavor. Because remember, you don't want too much of these two don't like each other. Another way to get calcium in there without adding more sulfate, let's say you want a nice ready beer, and you want something that's not hoppy or harsh hoppy or strong hoppy, and you need to get some calcium in there. Well, you're not going to want to use that because the sulfates are going to accentuate the, hop, the hops and the bitterness. Well, you got a pale beer, you don't want to put more carbonates in there because you're going to have trouble keeping the pH low. Well, another good way to get calcium in there is right there, calcium chloride. Calcium's going to do what you want. Got more calcium in there. Chloride's going to round out the flavor, make it more, more rounded with that one. Uh, you need sodium in there, or you need to get some, you've got dark beers, and you need to pull back and use a lot of mal uh, dark malts. You don't want to get some more carbon in there. Well, one way to do it is these two compounds right there. So the main thing is you can't just add ions. I need, I need calcium in there because I need to lower the pH. Well, you don't want to add necessarily that to do it. Alright? So the main was to remember these two because they mostly deal with the pH. Okay? If the pH is uh, too high because you've got you know, too carbon in the water and you've got to get it lower, you want to use this because the calcium works to pull acid out of the out of malt. Help push that pH back down. And then carbonate, calcium carbonate, uh, dark malts, you do more stout, this kind of thing, and you add calcium, good idea to add that to it. You kind of got to know where your water is to start with, but thinking this way, it's empirical, it's, you know, you using distilled water or RO water, then you can build it wherever you want. Uh, Let's go to some famous brewing waters and why they work and things like that. Uh, like London, Dublin, and Munich. What are they famous for? Dark beers. High carbonates. Yeah, because they've got high carbonates. They're high carbonates, so they're, they're really tough to get that pH down to a decent range, so you're going to get enough efficiency, enough extraction out of that. So they came up with the, the idea of using dark grains, it just worked for them. They didn't say, hey, I've got high carbon, I'm going to put some dark grains in there. They just trying different things and they found out that that one works the best. Uh, Dublin, London, and Munich all have high carbons, but they've got different uh, levels of these things in them too. 
so that's what makes those just a little bit different. That's you know why Devil in London and Dublin all make stouts. They make a little bit different beer, but they all think common is they're all dark beers. What they need to get done with that. Uh, Pilsens, that's the thing on the other end. They've got almost nothing in the water. I think they've got five parts per million of calcium, something like that, and they're all right around that 5, 10, 15 range. When you want to get, you know, you have sulfate up in the 400 parts per million range. They have nothing in their water. Well, they can brew a nice, mellow beer, all pale malt. Uh, they had some issues getting the pH down. Remember I told you um, almost plain water and, and, and Pilsner malt, if, if the pH is still too high. So five eight, maybe even five nine, you just won't get that done. So that they, they started doing the, the acid rest. They also came up with decoction mashing too. That helps give the enzymes a lot longer to work, a lot more time to work. The enzymes will work at different ranges, they may have a peak, but it just takes them to work slower. So that's gonna help the decoction mash is gonna help them mow through all this stuff, get the pH down where it needs to go in the absence of hardly any calcium. You gotta remember back then again they didn't know what any of this stuff was. They just knew what worked and what didn't. Uh, then we have Burton on Trent, that's the other one. Fast ales, things like have ever tasted one of those. It's very minerally, it's like drinking mineral water and beer. Uh, it's got a very distinctive taste to it. It's got uh, a clean, sharp bitterness to it. Uh, more bitter than, uh, say, the London ales, because the water conversion is just very high in a lot of things. Really high in carbonates. Really high in carbonates. But it's so high in carbonates, it's also very high in calcium. When you get these two together, they have a tendency to cancel each other out. I thought it was high in sulfur. It's high in everything. But it's high in these, and it's really high in sulfates. Normally, you see, you know, the level of this. I think it's 225 or more. This one's probably uh, you know, 200. You saw this alone. That's really alkaline water. It'd be hard to brew much of anything in a stout. But the fact that this and this almost match each other, they almost offset. So it's the offset that matters with that. Then you've got a lot of sulfate. And the sulfate is what comes up is, I mean, it's a lot of sulfate. 400 parts per million, 450, 450. 450. Yeah. But no brewers using above 150 these days. Yeah. When, you, when I add it, I don't go above 150. That's, that's a high sulfate beer. I don't go above 160. They made it work because yeah, but it's a certain type of beer that they brew. It's uh, pale, pretty hoppy, clean bitterness, but it's got that mineral quality to it. That I've had a couple of beers as uh, brew pubs. It's oh, you know, Burton beer, or, you know, whatever it happens to be, or, and I just taste a bucket of salt. Yeah, it's very brittle. <laughs> It, it's, it's not clean, and it's just I mean, too much chloride in there. Too much sodium chloride, whatever. He just, I don't know whether he didn't know what his water was to begin with, and just added burtonizing salts to it, but you can overdo it, and you won't get that balance. 
So you've got to kind of know where you're starting from, what you're adding to it. Any other questions? If you're doing a really pale, pale beer with uh, and doing a decoction okay. mash, is it even necessary to even look at the pH then? Yeah. 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 Well, the whole thing with the pH is, is what you look at. You know, enzymes work at different temperatures. Uh, optimal. They also have an optimal pH to work in too. And when we're hitting that window of you know five four or five six, that's just a window. Some like it lower, some like it higher. They'll still work, but we're trying to hit the, the medium ground in that. You don't want to be changing your pH in the middle of the match. We can change, we can change the temperature and optimize the, the enzymes that way. But try to nail your pH when you first go in. Give it a couple of minutes and, and then check it. It's really easy with the, the newer uh, pH strips now, the n hydrin or p hydrin. They're expensive, but uh, a lot better than getting off the, the old pH meter. Uh, you can cut them in half, get two out of one. Do that. Uh, it's, so figure out, you know, where, okay. once you hit your mash, pH will pretty much stay there. Okay. But the, but the functional answer to, to your question is, is if you have too much sulfate, not enough carbonate, it's possible to wind up with a pH that's too low from a decoction. Okay. So you can you can lower the salts. It's kind of a hit and miss unless you do all the math and figure it out. Uh, I like to I build all my water back up so I kind of know where I'm going to end up from scratch on up. So you got to know how much you're adding into it. Okay. That way. If you know how much basically if you know how much calcium you have, that's a good window on where to go because if you've got, if you've got low calcium, it's not going to help pull it down much. But you've got a lot of Acidic malt is going to pull it down. If you've got a pale beer and not a lot of calcium, you're going to have to add something to it. The easiest way to add acid to it. Okay. Is there a rule of thumb for decoction? Does it like lower your pH typically a certain amount whenever you do decoct? Each decoction that you do lowers pH approximately half a point because you are continuing to add phosphate to the mash. And the primary reason for it is, is that you're offsetting um, the minerals, or what the minerals will do, for helping to gelatinize starches. And so basically you're ending up breaking down beta-glucans, making starches available, pumping them up with water, which makes gives them substrate for the enzymes to actually function. So it's a way to compensate for having low mineral water, basically. Okay. Yes. <coughs> A lot of things that go on decoction. Yeah, yeah. Kind of stuff. Hey, yeah. So, do you know if the husk-less roasted malts are as acidic as? So they're every bit as acidic, but they what they do not yield is tannins. They're less less bittering from the tannins. All beer has tannins in it, but too much of it and different tannins from what you don't want to have. The, the acidic, acidic comes from the melanoids. So it's not a husk associated. No. no, that's not where the acidic comes from. Do you know what the water around here is? Uh, here is Contra Costa Water District. I think they stick a pipe in the salt yeah, but in the water up there. Uh, it's high. It's in the 8-1 range, I think. For, for that. 
I don't, I don't, I don't have. You can go online and they list all the different um, treatment facilities because it varies depending on which treatment facility your water is actually coming from. Okay. To some extent, but if you're into using bottled water, there's a website that has the, all the bottled water listed. What's in all? It's possible to call up your local water company and ask for a brewing chemist, and they'll figure out which set of wells you're on. And it will change throughout the years to which well you're getting, which is why your report will have basically a range of items, not specifics. Because in winter, most places have slightly softer water than in the middle of summer. Um, and the, and that's simply because there's more water flow in the middle of winter than there is in the middle of summer. So you're going to get you're going to get less ions dissolved in the water when there's a higher flow. And um, it's really easy to talk to a water chemist, and a lot of times they're very interested in the idea of brewing beer. It's not quite the novelty it once was, but they're very interested in that idea. And I guarantee you, dropping off a six pack as a thank you for their information will get you highly detailed and accurate information. <laughs> In addition, if you go on to the Morbier Forum and you do a search for water report, uh, there's a link to an online place which has all of the um, information on how you can order a test kit. Um, you want test number four. It's like $14. They send you two vials. You fill them up. You send them back to them. And you get an extremely detailed report on all of the stuff that you need to know specifically from brewing chemistry. And another way to do that is to take a vial of water, you know, basically a mason jar of water down to any company that wants to sell you water softeners. And uh, they'll come back and tell you, your water is unbelievably hard, and here's what's in it. And you could go away and say, well, thanks, man. This is going to make a good beer. That's a good way to do it. I don't know if Sears still does that, but it's a fortune. tonight, which is lagers. 
And as we will find out, you guys all good with this stuff up here? This is this is great information too, because I think most people will find out that the calcium is anywhere between 50 and about 90 parts per million. You're usually right in there. Um, it is that if you are able to measure your residual alkalinity on uh, based on your carbon area, you can basically figure out what your residual alkalinity is between um, sulfate, you know, your temporary hardness and permanent hardness. And the sum total of all three should wind up being zero because you are taking the calcium number and subtracting it from the other two. Okay. Um, Pilsners, or the Pilsner family, is probably the single biggest group of cousins and aunt and uncles and everything else that, there, that you could possibly think of in terms of family relationships. The influence of Pilsner cannot be understated. The discovery of the ability to use pale malts to create a pale colored beer has had as much influence on and also the ability to use lager yeast in conjunction with that has had as much influence or just as much influence on beer as the addition of hops. It's a big a fundamental change. It happened right around 1840 with the isolation by uh, Gabriel Settlemeyer of lager yeast, uh, which we remember is known as what? Saccharomyces. Carlsberg Guinness is what it started as. What's it known as now? Uvera. Uvera. U for under. Lower. Low. Um, and just, just out of curiosity, why did they change the name of it? Uh, heck if I know. They just have, it's actually had a few names in the last 20 years. Um, but they've changed the names of, they changed the names of an awful lot of different bacteria. In Lambic, um, because one particular species now known as uh, Idiococcus lambicus was so pervasive and so feared by brewers and so hard to get rid of that about 15 years ago its actual name was Pediococcus damnosus. <laughs> okay, so we do change names of things as we go. Um, it was so so important, a fundamental change in the flavor of beer and in the way beers were, were presented and, and happened, that there are actually um, online journals of Civil War soldiers coming up from the South, you know, trying to, to you know, beat the North, where they actually, some private will actually write in there, we came upon a farm that had excellent lager beer and we held over till we finished it. <laughs> So it has spawned a lot of things. We've already had several Pilsner cousins. We've had Kolsch, which is a Pilsner cousin. We've had Cream Ale, which is a Pilsner cousin. All of these are designed to mimic the original Pilsner, which is going to be one of the last beers we have tonight, uh, which is Bohemian Pilsner, where it all started in Czechoslovakia.
are going to start with premium American lager. Um, Michelob claims that they don't use any corn in this, but 
Yeah. I think I that there's definitely a Pilsner-esque. Yeah. A lot of that DMS, that corn stuff, comes from um, the Pilsner malt. And if it is a Budweiser product, chances are what they use is rice, not corn. But they're claiming now that their reformulated Nikolov is not an adjuncted product. They've been making that claim for about five years. Okay, what's coming up next is Munich Hellas. Munich Hellas is another Pilsner cousin, and basically it will again be an all malt product. Uh, will accent malt sweetness over hops. It's from Munich water, remember, so that's a water that is what? High in carbonate, which tends to accent sweetness and downplay the hops. Um, what you're tasting is Weihensteffener, original premium. This is their just original premium lager. It is a municalis, so it'll be um, the irony of giving you these uh, these uh, style guidelines tonight is, is that by the end of the year there's going to be a minor revision which is going to add beers like this to uh, some of the classic examples. They're not in there right now, but they will be. It says, uh, it says this one in there. It has this under a classic. Weinheim Stefan? W-E-I-N-H-E-N-S-T-E-P-H-A-N. The thing about German words is you got to pronounce every letter. Every letter. Yeah. Which is why the French basically said, screw that, we're just going to ignore half the letters. Weinhenstefen. Uh, Weinhenstefen is one of the old breweries. It's one of the classic breweries uh, in Germany. They make a classic Hefeweizen that we'll have when we do wheat beers. Um, so Weinhenstefener is also one of the older lager breweries around as well. They, were, they definitely took advantage of the isolation of lager yeast um, and produce not only this as a municalis, but they produce a German Pilsner, which I do not believe is currently imported into the U.S., at least not on the West Coast. Is that a real honey-like honey character? Yeah, you have a definite honey-like honey character. The Pilsner, if you can find it, and the last time I found it was about 12 years ago at Supenkucha in uh, San Francisco, is that there's a distinctly to distinct toastiness to the... Um, the malt profile, and if ever a beer screamed at me, they do decoction mash. That was it. So where does that, that honey character come from? It's a malt affectation. And it may be just because it might be a slightly old example. Yeah.
honey component, though, is a relatively common flavor in a lot of German cultures. So I gotta think that. Yeah, can I see that bottle? What's beer in it? Because <laughs> <laughs> sure, there's plenty in there. Let's see how far it is. Oops, I spilled. Hey, I guess it's really. <laughs> I spilled a little. No detours. Go ahead, touch it. This one's leaking a little. Yeah, there's plenty in there. To me, it just has that characteristic kind of German Pilsner malt flavor, which is, again, is a little bit honey like. I think I kind of get those confused. Uh, like the you know, German Munich, the toasty, with the light oxidation. A lot of it is experience. Yeah. Um, and the other part of it is really brewing a lot and knowing what you did and understanding your own evaluation. So do you find that the German Pilsner malt is going to give you that honey type character? Yeah. Real good, authentic, wire Pilsner malt has a distinctly toasty character to it that as it ages kind of hollows out and takes on some of that honey note. So if you were to make a filter, The difference between um, Belgian Pilsner and German Pilsner is largely personal preference. The Belgians make their Pilsner mostly the German specs. Uh, and cost. So, if I'm going to find a sack of grain, I can make it. Those are malts. Continental fills are malts. Continental fills are malts. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. It's going to take a little while before I lay on.
also <laughs> and somewhat ironically features Munich Mall. Yeah, Where Munich Hellas does not really feature so much Munich Mall. honey-like Pilsner malt quality to it. served last night too at a little Pilsner thing we did for a club meeting mm -hmm. last night and then was transported up here. Does, it, does that thing let air in when it's full yeah. expenses? Or? Uh, it doesn't seem to. It was simply venting. Uh, so why would it, if they didn't let any air in then why would it? Oh because in the packaging and in the transport the there's, that that there's already uh, oxygen in there. And it just takes time to react. And that sherry like the note is the faster that happens. That sherry like note, and it would take an awful lot of oxygen to turn it cardboard. That would be the more likely thing of being oxidized from last night versus today. That sherry like thing does not happen overnight. It takes months. That's yeah. That's yeah. Oh, you can bet this is shipped in a big old container up at the top of the ship and. It, Sits in the sunlight and then sits in right customs for about six months. Right through the Panama Canal. Yeah, through the Panama Canal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the ship is delayed, you know. Here. 
case struggling with this.
But notice that it's not a big floral aroma. It's not a pale ale-ish type of aroma, but it's still there. That's good. That German Michael is on that too. Mm -hmm. Very German Pilsner. This is a pretty fresh example. Um, color is golden. White head, creamy. Um, plenty of carbonation pop. And the hallmark is a nice dry finish and a nice um, crisp bitterness. The may or may not linger, but it should never be, you know, harsh or high. That's great. So we'll contrast this. German pilsners are an awful lot like American pale ales. They vary with every single brewer. So. Because of that, you really can't go wrong if you're using a moderately sulfated water, noble hops, all Pilsner malt. They don't tend to typically use caracols in their recipes. They get the body, used to get their body from the um, decoction mashes, and they tend to get their body from moderately high temperature mashes that are running right around 152 degrees or so. I'm sorry, 154 degrees, moderately hot. So, um, caramel though is easier for home brewers to use and would be something that's expected to be seen on a recipe for German pills. So 154 mash temp on German pills? German pills? Yeah. Wow. They'll usually profile from 147 up to 154. What do you mean by profile? Uh, let's talk about that when we talk about mash profile. Okay. Mash procedures. Okay. same color, 
same color head, same texture to the head, same sort of carbonation. The flavor is maybe just slightly sweeter, but still has a very dry, crisp finish. Perhaps a little more body to it, but you can see how it's still, they still kind of are very close. There's a certain closeness between all of them. Is, so is this under Munich Hellas, the Spaten? No, the Spaten is, uh, this is German Pilsner. We moved on to German Pilsner. But in the uh, style guidelines it says Spaten Premium. Spaten Premium is Munich Hellas? No, yeah. Spaten Premium is the Munich Hellas. Right. Uh, the, the Spaten. Yeah, you're right. Pilsner. It is. Spaten, uh, Spaten Pilsner. 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 Okay. Yeah. So I got them out of brown bottles. The big brown bottles. Yeah. My bad. Got them out of order. Okay. Yes, you're correct. It is a Municalis classic example. I thought I had a spot in the middle. Oh well. Yeah. Actually, they put the spot in the middle. Well, I saw the spot and I just. It's it's wine season too, and I'm burning the candle at both ends. So I spent my weekend um, combining great purchases with beer judging by going down through the Central Valley, then over to Santa Cruz to do their fair, then out to Larry to do their fair, and buy some grapes on the way back. And I'm still haven't fully recovered. No Saturday, Sunday, yeah. So I was driving down here and realizing, hey, I'm tired at the wheel and it's only 4 o'clock. I think it's that third wind. Yeah. I'm looking for an all-night Starbucks. <laughs> all right, then we will move into... We will move from German into classic American Pilsner. Another variation on Pilsner here. This is a pre-prohibition Pilsner. Pre-prohibition Pilsners were typically slightly adjuncted to take advantage of six-row ball. Up to about 20% corn. Let me give, give that one. Um, and. Yeah. Uh, Gary finally got on his way. Um, but they feature typically very Germanesque type hops. They still featured cluster, but they tried to make them a little more Germanesque. And wherever they could, they would import some hops and use them in aroma and flavor. Or they would simply try to grow noble varieties here in the U.S. This particular beer is Bohemia. 
It's a Mexican lager. And probably, arguably, the only real good example of pre-prohibition Pilsner. Classic American. It's called Classic American Pilsner. It is designed to be a beer that can stand up to any of the European Pilsners. So as a profile, it's a pretty good profile, a little bit sweeter, but it certainly stands up to Munich Hellas and it certainly stands up to German Pilsner. Bohemia. I know we're like, could we have done this before? Yeah, no, you cannot. Where we're where we're at, you cannot find Nickelodeon. Uh, it is not. I know because I went. Do you get like a, a little musty in the nose, I'm no or I don't know what it is. I wasn't paying attention, so maybe. It's I don't know what I'm getting in there, but it's cracked pepper. I don't know what I'm picking up. I'm just kind of trying to throw something out there. Anybody else getting musty out of this? Yeah. Musty, peppery. Maybe a little peppery? Musty. Could be. It's just musty, man. I think of a little sourness. I'm not getting sourness, per se. Maybe just thin. No, I'm not going to taste it. It's small. Yeah. Nobody. Possibly. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That's good, though. All the quality's in a beer. <laughs> <laughs> As you finish it down, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. Okay, now we go on to the big bonus. Pilsner. We're not going to deal with um, Bohemian Pilsner, or a.k.a. Czech Pilsner. Pilsner Raquel is respected as the first 
going to the front of our class. And no scum. I think I guess it's very interesting. I expected some scum. The check for wood. Don't pass these back. So to reduce it, at least in terms of um, lagers, 
we bring the beer from 55 degrees up to about 60 degrees and let it do a diacetyl rest for 24 to 72 hours. And all that's happening is, is we're allowing the yeast to just be a little more active and reduce those precursors faster. In the case of ale yeast, we're already fermenting above where a diacetyl rest might be. So the method for reduction of a diacetyl is simply to roust the yeast in some fashion to allow it to have more contact with the beer, pick up those precursors, and reduce them. Methods for rousting yeast are swirl the, swirl the carboy or pushing CO2 through it through an air stone of some sort and pushing it up. Never do we want to use air. <laughs> One of the things is, that's skunkiness, isn't it? You can leave your beer out in the sunlight for that. authentic. The skunkiness is such a notorious urban legend now that there's an urban legend that they actually now have a clear piece of tubing and a UV light on their pegging line <laughs> to induce it into the um, into the keg beer because people found it to be flawed if it didn't have that skunkiness. Heineken. It's an urban legend. They don't do that. Yeah, same original urban legend that they brew two different beers. Yeah. One throw over here, one throw over there. For the taste of it. No, that's a Guinness. No, it's a, an Heineken. Yeah, but doesn't Guinness do brew different? I think I forget. Yeah. 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 All the Guinness in America is Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know? But I like it. 
soccer leagues, but they were well defined by um, age and skill level and things like that, very well defined, and one kid enjoyed being on the green team, and the other kid enjoyed being on the blue team very much, and um, ultimately the blue was really a, an attractive color, and um, the kid thought the blue was great, and bought owl blue clothes for himself and such, and the neighbors began to notice and thought that blue was pretty cool, and basically painted their house a uh, shade of blue like that. And other neighbors thought that the blue house looked really cool and different and went ahead and started painting variations on it. And the homeowners um, association had to come along and realize too many houses were blue and it was just, there were too many variations of it and they just they had to really define it. So they came up with home blue units and as a definition, and nobody could, uh, everybody had to have a certain style that was within, was within so many home blue units of uh, blueness here and there. You guys aren't getting that joke, are you? Yeah, I yeah. Home brew units, yeah, yeah. home blue units. Okay. Basically, he was trying to tell us to ignore the confines of style and uh, just brew beer. Okay. That's why all of my they played well in Denver. How much did they have to drink and how late was it? It was 10 o'clock and we'd already been through probably 6 or 7 kegs. See, that's why. We're like tired from work. And one of the interesting things about New Belgian brewing is that I noticed that the closer you are to the brewery, the better the beers taste. Their beers do not travel well at all. I bet it's a really bad, fat tire. But you get right up there in, in Denver, in Colorado, and that tire is pretty good. Oh, really? 
Tastes like, what does that taste like? Yeah. Dirty socks. Yeah. Syrupy dirty socks. What are you getting for um, aroma in this? Caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> Shout that out during the exam. <laughs> or when you're judging. Yeah, it's Simcoe. I don't think it's Simcoe. It still has a happy. I'm definitely getting some DMS and some skunkiness. And yeah, and it's, it's, I'm getting skunkiness out of this. It's sort of a light struck version. Maybe they should can their beer at the house before <coughs> traveling. Out of that? I think it's really cold. I think it must be. 
I might try it in a few contests to see what happens. But I doubt it. It'll just stay on tap. And that's it. That's all we got. Oh, I do have one hand up to give you guys.